Let's now open God's Word. Our scripture reading this morning will begin in Ecclesiastes chapter 1. Ecclesiastes 1, and we'll read verses 1 through 18. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind, and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, See, this is new? It, is a, it has been already in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after I, the preacher, have been king over, over Israel in Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and striving after wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight. What is lacking cannot be counted." I said in my heart, I have acquired great, great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me, and my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceived that this also is but a striving after wind, for in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow." So far from Ecclesiastes, now we'll turn to the New Testament. We'll read first from the book of James. James chapter 4. And we'll read verses 13 through 17. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. And then finally, we'll turn to the letter to the Romans. Romans chapter 8, we'll read verses 18 through 25. Romans 8, verse 18. 
For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of Him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. So far, the reading of God's Word. The text that we'll be focusing on this morning is the same text that we've read from Ecclesiastes, that is Ecclesiastes chapter 1. We won't read that again now, but we will work our way through the text over the course of the sermon. Brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, as I mentioned beginning this week, uh, we're going to be taking now a sharp detour, a sharp turn from our series in First Peter to spend some weeks in this Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes. There's a couple of reasons uh, why we are going to this book. Uh, for one thing, it's been our, our pattern here that we go uh, Old Testament, New Testament, and back and forth uh, to, to maintain a, a biblical balance in our preaching sermons. Uh, we, we've uh, and so we, for example, we spent some some time in Kings, and then we spent some time in the epistles of the New Testament. Uh, but we've never really spent any time in Old Testament wisdom literature, uh, and there are immense depths of wisdom to be plumbed here from this portion of Scripture. The other reason is that, particularly as I've been spending time in this book of Ecclesiastes, I'm increasingly realizing uh, that there could hardly be a more relevant book for our time. Uh, Ecclesiastes is amazingly relevant for our age. It shocks us, it, it stops us in our tracks, and it speaks directly to the idols that we and our culture here in North America spend so much of our energy chasing after. Uh, it speaks to the deepest questions that we ourselves wrestle with and that our culture is wrestling with. Uh, it, it's amazingly relevant. And as you read through the book, uh, you start to realize, man, this book knows me. This book knows what lives in my heart. It understands what drives me. Uh, and it really shows the amazing depth uh, and wisdom of God's Word. At the same time, it is a difficult book. Now, even though in the end, this book does truly give uh, wisdom, perspective, and, and even hope, uh, yet along the way, uh, at many places along the way, it's going to feel hopeless. It feels dep depressing and despairing. It's disturbingly honest about the realities of this life. Uh, and that makes it a very uncomfortable book to read. Uh, there are things in this book that we would probably rather not face uh, and deal with and talk about. Uh, some Christians have uh, found this to be a depressing book. 
Uh, but others, including, ironically, oftentimes those who struggle with depression, uh, find this book to be a breath of fresh air, a moment of honesty and clarity in the midst of an otherwise very foggy and obscure world. Now, the main speaker in this book is presumably King Solomon, the son of David. In verse 1, he's called the preacher, the son of David, king over Israel in Jerusalem. Uh, King Solomon is the only uh, person who fits that description. A son of David, a king over Israel, so not just Judah, but Israel, uh, and reigning in Jerusalem. Uh, Later on as well, the book talks about how this was the wisest man ever to rule uh, in Jerusalem. It talks as well about massive building projects, uh, immense wealth, a huge harem uh, of concubines. All of these details also seem to match the life of King Solomon. Uh, That being said, there is a secondary author here, uh, and, and it's his words that we're actually reading. So he seems to be writing down perhaps in his own words, the things that he has learned from Solomon. Uh, this is the person who introduces the book in verse 1, writing, uh, not, not I, King Solomon, but about uh, King Solomon. And he closes the book as well in chapter 12, verse, verse 9. Uh, that also fits with the language and, and the timing of this book. Uh, the, the original Hebrew uh, of this book is clearly influenced by Aramaic, which, which only influenced Hebrew much later than the life of, of Solomon. That's the language of the Babylonians and the Persians. Uh, and the book was probably then also written down at that time. Uh, therefore, some, some have claimed, uh, including many, many good reform scholars, have claimed that this wasn't actually written by Solomon, uh, but... Uh, but was simply written as if as if he had written it. Uh, but it, perhaps a, a better way to understand this is that this is wisdom that was passed down from Solomon that was preserved, as the Jews often did preserve, uh, in oral traditions that may have changed, uh, the, the exact words of which may have changed over time, but the substance of which remains preserved. That's how many of the scriptures were ultimately then committed to writing. Uh, So it's not impossible for Solomon to have first taught the message of this book to his sons, uh, to to the kings who would come after him, uh, and then it was passed on until hundreds of years later it finally got written down by someone else. Uh, So that's the assumption that we're going to be working with, uh, that this I... Uh, the, the first person speaker who is called the preacher uh, is indeed Solomon. That seems to make the most sense of what we're reading. Now, what about the purpose of this book? Uh, Solomon's purpose in this book is to wrestle with the hardest questions of life under the sun in this world. If we fit this, if we were to try and fit this into Solomon's life, uh, it would make the most sense that this book would have been written towards the end of Solomon's life. We know that Solomon started out as a very godly king. Uh, At the beginning of his reign, he was offered one blessing from God, one thing that he could ask for, uh, whether it be riches or, or, or something else. And Solomon asked God for wisdom, and God gave it to him in greater measure than than had ever been given to any man before him. 
during those years of wisdom, uh, he would have written the book of Proverbs uh, as well, which explores how we worship God in the, in the various practical areas of our lives. Uh, he would have also written the Song of Solomon, a, a sort of love song to his bride, uh, and, and it explores the, the, the meaning of, of love. These are the, this is the age of Solomon's wisdom. Uh, but we also know that later in life, Solomon ultimately turned from the Lord. Uh, he accumulated uh, more than 600 wives and 300 concubines, something that the Scriptures had explicitly commanded kings not to do. And those wives and concubines ultimately turned his heart away from God. He, he began worshipping foreign gods and even built temples for those gods. Well, if we're going to try and fit Ecclesiastes somewhere into Solomon's life, the best guess would be to put it at the end of his life. Uh, after those years of unfaithfulness, it seems to suggest that perhaps towards the end of his life, Solomon stopped and looked back on all that he had done and everything he was chasing after in his life. And that's when he realizes how empty and meaningless it all was. And then he, uh, the, the assumption here is that he, he must have at that point then turned back to God. Uh, and so anyways, now Solomon speaks and, and his message hits us very hard. Vanity of vanities, he says. All is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? There's a couple of key phrases uh, in that very first line that we want to stop and, and unpack. One is this phrase, under the sun. Now, what that refers to is, is simply in this world, on this earth, from the perspective of, of this earth. Uh, Solomon, in this whole book, is considering life from the perspective of this earth, limited to what we can see and perceive here under the sun. Uh, so this is not, and this is an important point, this is not an ultimate treatise uh, or, or a treatise on the ultimate meaning of life or a treatise on what is eternity beyond this life. Though he does touch on some of those things, his focus is on this world here under the sun. What can we know about life and the purpose and meaning of life from what we see here under the sun? The second phrase that we want to understand is this word vanity. Now you'll notice it's the key word throughout this book that Solomon uses to describe life. Uh, in the Hebrew, it's, it's this word hebel, uh, and it literally means something like breath or mist or vapor. And perhaps some of you have grown up on the NIV translation, and that translation uses the word meaningless to translate this Hebrew hebel. It's not a very good translation. I think part of the reason, in fact, that many Christians have had a hard time with this book is because they're reading it through the lens of overly interpretive translations like the NIV that make, that, that pack more into this word that doesn't actually come from the text, but from their own assumptions about what Solomon must have meant by the word. Uh, the King James and the ESV uh, use this word vanity, and it comes a lot closer to the meaning of, of the original mist or vapor. Uh, vanity means uh, something along the lines of emptiness and futility. Now, the word does mean different things in, in different contexts, so it's hard to nail down a, a single good way to translate it. 
And perhaps that shouldn't surprise us, that the word that Solomon uses to describe life uh, is as, uh, as complicated and difficult a word as life itself is complicated and difficult, with, with variegated angles that you, you might look at it. Uh, but for the most part, when we encounter this word in this book, uh, we're going to try and read it as much as possible according to its, its original literal meaning of mist or vapor. Life is a mist. Life is like the, the morning mist when you step out onto a cold day and you breathe out and you see your breath there hanging on the air for just a moment and then it vanishes and is gone. It's the language that the Psalms also very often use. Uh, Psalm 144, verse 4, Man is like a breath, his days are like a passing shadow. It's the, it's the same idea that the Apostle James uh, wrote that we read earlier from James 4. He says, You do not know what tomorrow will bring, for what is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. It's amazing, isn't it, how much uh, honesty and wisdom you find in the Scriptures and from the people of God in bygone ages, uh, and how much of that wisdom is lost in the present day. the, The people of God in other ages had a keen awareness of the brevity and smallness of their lives. We tend to think of ourselves and our age, our time, as, as the most important time in history, and we as the, the most important people in the universe, uh, and the things that we do as, as of having such high importance. But the Scriptures speak into that and say, no, you are a mist. Your life is a mist. Psalm 103, as for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field, a flower that's, that's beautiful for a moment in its time. And then the wind passes over it and the flower fades and it's gone and its place knows it no more. Look around. Uh, don't we love springtime? Isn't it uh, the favorite season for, for, for most of us when we see the flowers coming up, the beauty of creation coming back to life, the world becomes green. Uh, but then look at how quickly it passes. Uh, where are the, the flowers that were around last year and the year before? Does anyone even remember those flowers? You know, I have in my, my uh, cold cellar a, a dandelion wine that we made in the spring of 2018. Sort of the best attempt one can make to capture uh, the, the dandelions of, of that springtime. It's not a very good, uh, particularly good wine. Uh, but that's, that's really the best that we can do. Uh, and it's gone. No one remembers those dandelions. No one remembers that spring. It's gone. It has faded as quickly as it came. Uh, Where are the flowers that were around when you were a toddler uh, in your parents' uh, home? Those are gone. They're passed away, long forgotten. And and the Scriptures say that's your life. Uh, The Scriptures are honest, uh, more so than we ourselves tend to be. So as we deal with this this word hebel, then uh, for the most part we'll just be translating it literally as mist. Our lives are a mist, and the things that we pursue, Solomon says, are a mist, a breath that fades and is gone. Uh, this word mist then implies not only transience, that life is fleeting, quickly passing, but also a certain elusiveness to life. Uh, it cannot be captured. It cannot be grasped. You can't hold on to it. It, it will escape your grasp. 
It means that trying to hold on to this life is also futile. Trying to hold on to the things of this world is futile. It's like grasping after the wind. Now, the word mist as well, it also captures this idea of obscurity and fogginess that that characterizes our, our lives. We cannot see into the future. We cannot know what God is doing from His throne room, what His purposes are for what He does. Uh, We cannot entirely understand even our own lives. We don't know what God is doing even with our own lives. It's a mist. Life is a mystery, an enigma. It cannot be fathomed. It cannot be understood. Uh, Finally, this this word mist, it also captures uh, a certain sense of emptiness that characterizes much of what we pursue, much of what we place our hope in. Uh, When you finally, if you ever get what you're chasing after, you actually reach your goal, you're going to discover that you have two handfuls of wind that you are carrying. It's empty in the end. It's not worth what you thought it was worth. As you can see how this this word sort of carries different ideas, different connotations in all of its different contexts. So the preacher says, mist of mists, mist of mists, all is mist. What does man gain from all his labor under the sun? He gains nothing. He gains mist. Now, one more thing about this word. Uh, if you look up this word in a Hebrew concordance, you can uh, buy some of these. Even if you don't know Hebrew, you can get, for example, Strong's uh, Hebrew concordance, and you can look up these words by, by number and find out where else in Scripture is this word used. Uh, you discover that it's very often translated as uh, not, not breath or wind or mist, but as idols. Give you a few examples. Deuteronomy 32, this is the song of Moses, uh, where God says, They have made me jealous with what is no God. They have provoked me to anger with their idols. That's the same word, hebel. So then he says, I will make them jealous with those who are no people. I will provoke them to anger with a foolish nation. Or 2 Kings 17, uh, we preached on that text uh, a couple years ago, uh, looking back on why did Israel get carried into exile, and it describes uh, how how they fell into idolatry. And it says, uh, verse 15, they went after false idols, that's the same word, hebel, and they became false. And they followed the nations that were around them, concerning whom the Lord had commanded them that they should not do like them. Uh, Psalm 31, verse 6, uh, the psalmist says, I hate those who pay regard to worthless idols. Same word, but I trust in the Lord. Or, or one more, Isaiah 57, verse 13, When you cry out, says the Lord, let your collection of idols deliver you. The wind will carry them off. Uh, a breath will take them away. But he who takes refuge in me shall possess the land and shall inherit my holy mountain. Uh, so there is, there is in Scripture a strong connection that we want to pay attention to uh, between this word hebel and, and the worship of idols. Uh, and that's something we, we especially want to see in this book. Because even though this book never once uh, mentions the word idols, it doesn't mention that word by name, uh, what this, much of what this book confronts in our lives is exactly that. It is idolatry. And it seeks to drive home the awareness that these things that we live for, that we pursue, they are empty, they are wind. As as the prophet Hosea says, those who who sow the wind shall reap the whirlwind. Now, I want to warn against just a couple of 
temptations uh, that we'll be confronted with as we work our way through this book. One temptation uh, that we want to be aware of, uh, that we're going to feel the real force of, uh, is to try and avoid the reality that this book is setting before us by, by pulling, so to speak, the spiritual escape hatch. Uh, by by saying, yes, 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 what this book is saying is that life without God is a mist. That life without God is, is meaningless. Well, that may be true, but if we go there too quickly, we're going to miss the force of what Solomon is actually saying and trying to impress upon us because he's not here talking about life without God. He's including, he's talking about life under the sun, including for those who know God, who fear God. Even for us, life is a mist. And one of the great messages of the book of Ecclesiastes is that God gives the gift to those who fear Him of knowing how to find joy even in the mist of their lives. Ecclesiastes 2, verse 24, there's nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. True wisdom knows how to recognize, as James also teaches us, that this life is a mist. And wisdom uh, knows how to fear God in the middle of that mist, to rejoice in, in one's work, even knowing that it will pass away. Uh, We should not escape the force of what Solomon is telling us. It's too simplistic to to reduce this book to to life without God is a mist. Even with God, here under the sun, life bears that character of mist. And the gift of God is to see the mist and to give thanks to God for the mist that is your life. To thank Him for the short time that you have to flourish like a flower of the field, and then pass away to know how to still give thanks for that. Uh, To enjoy the heavy toil that God gives you for your work. To enjoy the wife or husband that God gives you to enjoy your time with. All the while, as Moses says in Psalm 90, numbering your days with a heart of wisdom. Uh, Another related temptation here is to, to interpret this book thinking that Solomon is, is really only speaking hypothetically here. Uh, he's challenging us, sort of speaking like a devil's advocate, saying uh, that, that uh, he's trying to lead you to faith by, by warning you that life could be um, a mist. Uh, and, and, but he doesn't actually mean what he's saying, and when he gets to the end of the book, he's going to correct uh, what he said earlier. Now, there's, there's a grain of truth to it. Solomon ultimately does uh, lead us to the conclusion, fear God and keep His commandments, for that's the whole duty of man. So he's not abandoning faith. He's not throwing away perspective over the course of this book. Uh, but, but his conclusion is not, now forget about what I said earlier about life being a mist. Actually, life is full of purpose. Fear God. His point is, fear God and keep His commandments because... Your life is a mist. And because all that is under the sun is vain, that's why you should fear God. Having said that, then let's just listen to the opening words of this book. Uh, We'll notice there are uh, several tragic realities about life uh, that that mark our lives under the sun that that are highlighted in this chapter. In the first place, uh, as we've seen, life is marked by transience. That is, life is 
fleeting. Verse 4, a generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. I pondered this recently as, uh, as I explored our family tree. My, my younger sister recently did some work putting together uh, our family tree. Uh, it's kind of interesting. I discovered we have some lords uh, somewhere uh, back in the 1300s in England, which is uh, kind of cool. Uh, but as I looked at all these different individuals and their names, names uh, which, which I've never heard of before, uh, I thought about their stories. And, and of course, there are people I never knew. Uh, and they never knew me. Uh, and their brief time on the earth, whether it was uh, from 1313 to 1365, or whether it was from uh, 1520 to 1589, their short time on the earth was their time. They did their work. They, did, they made their decisions about who they were going to marry. They raised their children. And then they died, and the earth forgot about them. Uh, even their descendants like me never knew them, and, and they are complete strangers to me, just like I will be a few generations from now, complete strangers to those who come after me. Uh, the day will come when, when death will forcibly evict you from this earth, and someone else will take your place. Your house will no longer be your house. Uh, anything you possessed will no longer be your possession. A few generations from now, even your own descendants probably will not remember you. Your favorite places that you love to visit will have long forgotten you. A life under the sun is marked by, by a tragic transience. We flourish for a moment and are gone, and our place remembers us no more. Uh, secondly, life under the sun is marked by a, a tragic repetitiveness. Verses 5 and 6, the sun rises and the sun goes down and then it hastens back to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south, then it goes to the north. Around and around goes the wind and on its circuits the wind returns. There's a terrible monotony and repetitiveness uh, that marks our lives. Uh, This is true for each of us. We go to work, we go home from work. We go to work, we go home from work. Uh, that's, That's our life. Uh, And no matter how much we we try to break it up, throwing in vacations and other things to to break up the routine, uh, in the end, most of our lives will be characterized by routine. The same thing over and over. This is what mothers have to deal with day after day. You, you You spend two hours in the kitchen putting dinner together, and then in half an hour, it's gone. And then you get to spend your time cleaning it up. And in three hours, you get to do it all over again. There's a certain monotony that the preacher here laments about life. Uh, This is not the way it ought to be. There ought to be a sense of forward progress. uh, And yet, when you look at life, it does not bear uh, that uh, that sense. Uh, Thirdly, our lives under the sun are marked by a certain uh, insatiability. Verses 7 and 8, All streams run to the sea, but the sea is never full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor is the ear filled with hearing. It's like life is, is one great appetite that is never satisfied. The streams just run into the, stream, into the sea, and, and the sea never says, Okay, okay, that's, that's enough. They just evaporate, they go up into the clouds, they go back over the mountains, they fall, and they run down into the sea again. Uh, And Solomon says it's weariness. It's exhausting to think about. 
Uh, Verse 8, all things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. Uh, It's like he's asking the question, why? Why does the world go through all the bother of existing? What's it all for? The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. Uh, When do you ever suppose we're going to reach the point as a human race where we've said, okay, we've we've seen enough. Uh, We don't need to see uh, anymore. A couple of years ago when my, my wife and I went to Mexico, uh, we visited Chichen Itza, that, that great uh, Mayan pyramid. Uh, and the amount of people, uh, it's unfathomable in our COVID-19 age, uh, but the amount of people that were there to see it with us uh, was just astounding. Bus after bus after bus of people coming to see this monument. And that was just an, a weekday. And I'm sure uh, that, that when all of this, this uh, COVID-19 passes, those buses will be there again. Uh, and the staff, you, you, must, you think about it from the perspective of the staff who worked there, uh, they must think the same thing that Solomon is saying here. Man, the eye is just never satisfied with seeing. And all of us tourists, once we've gone and we've seen that place and we've snapped our selfie uh, in front of that pyramid, uh, then we've seen it. And now we have to go and see the next thing. Uh, and so on it goes. The eye is never full of seeing. The ear is never full of hearing. Uh, philosophies uh, and ideas uh, are always coming down the hatch. Uh, they're always changing. We go from one thing to the next, or we recycle the old ideas in new terminology over again. Uh, music, too. The ear never full of hearing. Music is always changing. It's always the latest song that has just captured uh, the, the uh, cyberverse. Uh, and, uh, and we all want to hear the newest artist, the, the next greatest thing. That's, that's our consumeristic world. And, and it's really not just our culture. It, it's a human condition. It's always getting the next, the newest, the latest. Uh, and how often do, do we stop and realize that you know the last thing didn't satisfy us. The one before that didn't satisfy us. And that probably means this one that we, that we now think is so great is not going to satisfy us. There's, a, there's maybe something depressing about what Solomon is saying, but, but something that is painfully true and honest as well. And again, let's not forget Solomon is talking about this life under the sun. There's nothing new, he says, under the sun. Uh, And to the extent that we might find this depressing, we exhibit how, how in fact, we have been looking for meaning and satisfaction and and purpose uh, and reward here under the sun. And so what Solomon's doing, he's giving us a solid dose of reality. You are not going to find what you're looking for. Tell you one of uh, my own particular follies uh, is is I love to take pictures of everything that that our family does and and I love to spend a few days every December I'll collect them all into a, a photo book uh, with the hope that over the years I'll build up this massive collection of of photo books uh, and I think part of the reason that I do this uh, is because it gives me some sense of capturing the fleeting moments some sense of of holding on to them it's almost like uh, pursuing something lasting out of the, the fleeting moments of, of life. But of course, if that is what it is, 
It's foolishness, isn't it? Uh, at the end of the day, uh, you know, even if I keep this up for 50 years, uh, and, and our family is going to have 50 years of, of photo albums uh, by the time I die, what's going to happen to those? Well, maybe my kids will keep them. They'll, they'll enjoy them. Uh, maybe their kids will keep them. But after that, most certainly it will go into a dumpster. Uh, the, my great-grandkids are not going to lug that collection around. And so all of it perishes. It's a solid, uh, painful dose of reality. Uh, And really what Solomon's getting at with all of these uh, different aspects of life uh, is that life under the sun is marked by a profound futility. Futility. What's it all for? Where's it all going? Verses 9 to 11. What has been is what will be. And what has been done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which it is said, see, this is something new. It has already been uh, in, in the ages before us. There's no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. Life under the sun is marked by profound futility. It's like we're driving around the cul-de-sac, going nowhere. Now, sure, some things do change on the surface. One empire uh, falls and another rises up. Uh, and that one, too, a few hundred years later, will also fall. Uh, technology develops, and so uh, as human beings, we get to do the same things but in new ways. It doesn't change the human condition. Now, we continue to sin. Now we just use technology to do it. Uh, nor does it ward off, uh, for all of our, our medical advances, it doesn't ward off the, the impending reality of death. It may extend our lives for a few years, but then we too must still die. And when Solomon, then when he says that there's nothing new under the sun, uh, he doesn't mean, of course, that there's absolutely never anything new uh, as far as it goes. It's that there's nothing that changes our fundamental human condition. Uh, And most of what we see and experience is the same thing recycled. The same political ideologies recycled under new terms with a new brand, but nothing ultimately new under the sun. There's no lasting reward under the sun. Isn't that what he's asking with his last question? What does man gain from all his toil under the sun? There's no lasting reward. There's nothing that you are pursuing here under the sun that you are going to be able to keep. This is why uh, young people love to have a cause. All right, this is this just runs in our in our blood. The saying goes that all you need to survive is food and clothing and a cause for your existence. Uh, we love to have a cause. Like, come on, get on board. We're gonna we're gonna change the world. We've got these new ideas, and and they're gonna really transform the human existence. And of course, we we know in the back of our heads, we know that the last generation tried the same thing and the one before them too. But we think, no, well, they had bad ideas. We now, we have good ideas. They had, they had old ideas. We have new ideas. And so every generation thinks that now, now things are really going to change. Now we're going to get ourselves out of this human condition. And the truth is we never do. Now we, we can respond to that reality in, in a few different ways. Uh, some of us are just going to ignore it because we find it unbearable. Uh, we, we're going to keep on chasing after the wind because it's the only hope we have that maybe the wind will turn out to not be wind. Maybe there will be substance to it. Eventually, we're going to catch it. Uh, some of us, uh, hear, hearing these things, are just going to throw up our hands in despair. 
Uh, we're going to see, in fact, how Solomon is tempted to do the very same thing uh, over the, the coming chapters, where he, where he just throws up his hands and says, what's the, what's the point of it all? But, but what Solomon would ultimately teach us here uh, is to come away from these truths with a heart of wisdom. Uh, this is life under the sun. This is life under the curse. God has subjected this world to futility ever since man decided to worship the creation rather than the Creator. Uh, and, and that's a painful truth that we live in a world that is marked by futility, uh, but it's a truth with which we have to reckon. Uh, and so we have, as human beings, we have these God-shaped holes in our hearts uh, that we're stuffing with all sorts of, sorts of things, hoping to, to fill them, but we never do. These are truths with which we must reckon. Uh, Solomon would teach us then a heart of wisdom that recognizes in the first place that this is life under the curse. Uh, it is, as he says, an unhappy business that God has given to the sons of men. What is crooked, which God has made crooked, cannot be made straight. What is lacking cannot be counted. No amount of searching and learning and pondering and striving is going to change that. We cannot escape the futility of life under the curse. It's for this reason that I find the book of Ecclesiastes to be uh, profoundly uncomfortable. And I imagine you probably do too. But, but I also find it at some level to be profoundly refreshing just because it's true. It confronts the idols that weary us to death, uh, and it confronts them head on and says, look these things in the face. They're wind, they're breath, they're passing. You can't keep them. Uh, one of the greatest idols in our day, I certainly see it in my life too, uh, is the fear of missing out. Now, so much of what we do in this earth, uh, maybe it's, it's, it's my generation in particular, I don't know, uh, but so much of what we do is driven by a fear of missing out. Uh, we, we work so hard to make sure that uh, we don't miss out on whatever it is. We're not sure what it is, uh, but we want to make sure we don't miss out on it. Uh, when someone else gets something, whether it's a bigger house or a better income uh, or better vacations or a, a, a more enjoyable sex life or better children, uh, how easily we're filled with this, uh, this, this profound regret and fear of maybe I'm missing out. Maybe God is giving whatever it is to them uh, and, and he's not going to give it to me. Uh, and so we, we, we double down uh, to, to try and get our piece of the pie, uh, or, or otherwise we resign ourselves to despair. Uh, and Solomon just breaks through with this crystal clarity that says, guess what? We all are missing out. We're all missing out. The human condition is ultimately one of missing out. Uh, there is nothing to be gained under the sun. You will not find what you're looking for. You're chasing after the wind. What's crooked cannot be straightened. What's lacking cannot be counted. There's no such thing under the sun as a full life, as a fulfilled life. You can't fill it. It, it, it cannot be filled. As we think about that, maybe some of us are starting to wonder, where's the gospel in all of this? Uh, in, in such a book as this, where do you find uh, the gospel? How, how does this uh, teach us Christ? 
Well, the message of Ecclesiastes is not uh, that, that what we need to do now is get the God brick and, and stick that into our walls and then, then it will get complete. Uh, together there with all the other bricks, then we're going to have a full uh, life and things will make sense. Uh, no, what Solomon is teaching us to do is to face the fact that we cannot get life to make sense. You can't do it. Uh, God has broken it in a way that only God can fix it. Uh, you will not escape the futility that you experience here under the sun. Uh, and and that we must begin then by coming to terms with that. Uh, until we see that, all we're going to do is keep chasing after the wind. Maybe we'll load the God brick into its place uh, thinking that that's going to help us catch the wind. It's not going to help you catch the wind. You're chasing after the wrong thing. Uh, the wise will come to see that the wind cannot be caught because God has made it uncatchable. Uh, that, that means then that the book of Ecclesiastes is going to be measured in, in giving hope. It does give hope. It does give perspective. But it will be measured and careful so that we also have to be measured as we deal with these things. Uh, we cannot pull the escape hatch. We cannot escape the troubling parts. We can't just rush to the good parts. Uh, we're going to get there, but we can't rush there prematurely. We have to confront these hard truths. Uh, as as uh, the prophet Jeremiah says, uh, you cannot heal the wound lightly. It wasn't meant to be healed lightly. The gospel heals deeply. It doesn't heal superficially. God then has broken this world. He has subjected it to futility, as Paul says in Romans 8. And God has done this so that we would turn back to Him as, as our hope, to Him as the very purpose and reason for our existence. Now, the book of Ecclesiastes is going to land on that same conclusion, that there's nothing better for man than to know his Creator and to fear Him, uh, to walk before Him and to rejoice in the midst of our toil uh, in this life, to rest in the knowledge that what's lacking is, cannot be counted, but that's okay because God is the one doing the counting, not me. Uh, that, that's why uh, the word meaningless, it, it really is such a bad uh, translation. Uh, it's true that on the surface, life, life may sometimes appear meaningless. Uh, but the point is, you can't search out the meaning. You have to give that over to God. It is, though, it is known to God. He knows what life is for and what will come of it. Uh, Solomon says, really, in, in, in the lowest point of despair, you get to chapters 8 and 9, and those are hard, heavy chapters. Uh, and there in the lowest point, he says, uh, in chapter 8, he says, even so I know that it will be well with those who fear God. Even though the righteous may die an untimely death and the wicked might prolong their life a hundred times over, he says, even so I know that it will be well with those who fear God. Uh, and we are to know that as well. Uh, every human being ought to know that. At the end of the day, uh, which dying man, since you will be a dying man or a dying woman, which dying man do you want to be? The one who chased after the wind and got everything there is to get in this life, uh, but has no fear of God in his heart and has nothing to hope for beyond this life. Uh, or, or, or do you want to be the one who, who gave up the pursuit of the wind, uh, who may 
have had very little in this life, but who feared God and is now on the brink of eternity, an eternity he can't see into, but an eternity in which he knows the God in whom I've trusted is going to carry me forward through this. Since both will die, which deathbed do you want? And we all know that at the end of it all, uh, since there's nothing to be gained under the sun, uh, nothing that can be kept, uh, and we have to give our spirit back to God, uh, we know it is better to fear Him. Uh, and that, that is where the gospel really comes into this, this book. Christ died to save sinners of which you are one. To save those who on their deathbed know that that not only have they sinned against God, but they've gained nothing in this world but two handfuls of wind. uh, And that they've committed uh, a hundred handfuls of sins to obtain that wind. Christ died for those sinners. If there's nothing more important in this life than to know God and fear Him, what's the path to doing that? It is through the cross of Christ. If the message of Ecclesiastes then is to teach us to, to rest in God uh, and to fear God in the, in, in the midst of, of the mist of our lives, it is the gospel that enables us to do that, to rest in Him though our lives are missed. The gospel reminds us Christ has made me right with God, the God who will make meaning out of this life. It's because of Christ that my soul can still be at peace uh, in the midst of wind and in the midst of a, of a broken, futile, crooked life. Uh, it's because of Christ that I can know that despite the transience and the futility of this life, yet God loves me and His favor shines upon me. It's because of Christ that I can do what the preacher calls me to do, to eat my bread, to drink my wine, to enjoy my toil with the fear of God on my heart and the knowledge that God is the one who carries my soul uh, to to eternity. And I can leave because of Christ. I, I don't need to fight against God. I can leave the brokenness of this life in His hands to fix it in His time and His way. And He will do so in His time. The creation was subjected to futility, Paul says, but it was, it was subjected in hope. At the end of it all, the sons of God are going to be revealed, and, and God alone can do the revealing. So there is, there is a profound joy to be found uh, in seeing this world as it is. Now, that's the promise that this book holds out for us and that the gospel then seals for us. Amen.